listening forever. But and you chose me to start back. That's your fault, man. That is your no, fault. I know. Poor planning. Straight up yeah, poor well, planning. What are you gonna do? You know? What are you gonna yeah. Do? Yeah. When you have tenure, you don't have to plan anymore. You can stop planning. That's right. That's right. That's right. Go. So right. that's that, that's the plan. That's the plan from now on. Is to not plan. Nice. Yeah, it's not planned. You got it. So, hey, everybody, it's at Percussion Podcast. It's episode 284, and we're recording on April 25th, 2021. If you're listening on release date, you're listening on May 13th, 2021. And with me, as usual, we got Ben Charles. How's it going, buddy? Hey, Casey. Doing well. How are you? Good. Thanks. And Carly Vigna, how are you? Hey, Casey. Good. I think this is the episode where we all celebrate your tenure. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody do a shot. Go. Fizzy <laughs> water? You got it. <laughs> Carly, I thought of you today because I had that yard work euphoria, like that, like, oh, oh man, yeah. I feel relaxed. Yard work put me in a relaxed state. And I remember that comment you made. I know all about that. That's an awesome feeling. I removed you're, you're not doing virtual yard work anymore. You're back to in-person. <laughs> I did in-person yard working. That's right. Um, yeah, no more virtual mower. No, I removed this nasty Christmas bush, some kind of awful Christmas holly thorny bush with, uh, I don't know, three feet down root the size of my my uh, my head. It was really, really gnarly. But I thought of you. And Ksenia Kamianovich is here. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, Casey. What's up? <laughs> you heard what's up. What's up with you? What this is not my kitchen behind me. Stop complimenting my kitchen, everybody in the comments. Nice kitchen. My kitchen. So. <laughs> I'm dog sitting. That's what's new with me. I have a buddy here. He might bark or barf. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> that would be just fine. Cause then you what happened today on May 13th release date? Anything interesting? Right. Uh, not too much. However, um, one thing that was interesting was that in 1767, Mozart's first opera, Apollo and Hyacinthus, written when he was 11 years old, got premiered in Salzburg. So I don't know what the average 11 year old does today, probably pick their nose, you know, for the Olympics, but Mozart wrote an opera. And uh, here's the thing um, that you can uh, know about it is, first of all, you can watch it online. So the Mozarteum University Symphony Orchestra has a lovely performance from 2006 that's online. And it's only about over an hour because, you know, 11 year olds, they, they don't compose that much. Um, but in any case, uh, interestingly, the story. Uh, that was a secret. <laughs> Um, the story uh, in the original, Apollo and Zephyrus, um, the, Zephyrus is the West Wind, both love the young Hyacinthus. And when the lad chooses the god, the beautiful prince chooses the god, the jealous uh, West Wind slays him with a javelin. And so uh, Hyacinthus dies, and therefore we get this beautiful flower called Hyacinth, um, and that's it. However, um, there, that's one version of the story. Another version is that Apollo and Hyacinth uh, hung out and wanted to throw discs, because that's what people used to do back in the days, you know, to hang out as lovers. And Apollo throws the disc so far up and is so strong that it falls and it kills Hyacinth, uh, poor Hyacinth. But in any case, in the version that Mozart did, well, that was not okay. Um, so they bodlerized it, which means that they censored anything that they thought was inappropriate. And in this case, it was homosexuality, which, by the way, if you read any of um, the myths, it is full of it. Um, gods are very human-like and there are relationships going on in all directions where gods turn into eagles and kidnap people and like that's all fine and then have babies with them and leave them alone and kill them and so on so it's yeah you know, it, it goes in all directions it's it's very very human but in any case in this version that mozart did um they inserted hyacinthus's um sister that they supposedly fought over her which sort of diluted the story and i think made it much less interesting but you know let's let's um Maybe give him a break. It was the 18th century. We've evolved since then. But that's that's about it. And 11-year-old had their opera premiered. So good job, Mozart. Cool. Isn't this the piece that like maybe his sister wrote? Or is that something else? Um, no, his sister. I mean, uh, as far as I've... Nope. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I haven't done that, that in-depth uh, research. But I do know that she cataloged this way later because it's... Definitely not one of his most known works. But yeah, I, you know, that's that's sounding more right the more I think about it and the more you say, uh, because I thought it was just a lot of his, like, really, really, like, 
I'm four years old writing stuff works. Because um, I know I reported on his sister once, because if you Google Mozart's sister, you'll find, like, was she actually the more talented of the two? Did she actually do a lot of the, the work for some of his, like, really, really young pieces? And how much of the father, like, supplanted some of this information? Anyway, so there's a lot of speculation about all that stuff. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks, Ksenia. This is by far the most knowledge drop day of COVID. I've learned more in this last two minutes than I've learned in like 18 months. So this is great. That's awesome. Hey, did you guys That's just hear? That's because of Casey's uh, in-person yard work, not because of me, right? That would, I, I'd blush <laughs> the <words. laughs> Javon, we're actually not going to have you on. We're actually just want, we actually just have the guests to you know, listen to us and motivate us to sound smart. That's exactly what I expect. Guys, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just heard his voice. He's our guest today, and he's the principal timpanist of the National Symphony Orchestra. You guys, he won that job when he was 29. Ben's not even 29. That's not true. <laughs> Ben's, Ben's, Ben's not even 29 yet, but Javon had this gig when he was only 29. So that's, I don't know, that's, that's unusual. That's really cool. He's also the timpanist of what's called the All-Star Orchestra, which is a made-for-TV PBS group comprised of players of orchestras around the country. And uh, gosh, what else? He's been a guest artist. Jeez, uh, I'm all over. He's performed with the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra, the San Francisco Symphony, Budapest Festival Orchestra, Detroit Symphony, the Mostly Mozart Festival. Um, and he's, yeah, been a clinician all over, PASIC, all, all sorts of places. And he has his own signature line of timpani mallets through Innovative Percussion. And it's our buddy, Javon Gilliam. How's it going, Javon? Hey, man, Casey, thanks for having me, dude. This is great, man. Yeah, sure. It's so cool to see you again. And gosh, I saw you at your university. He also teaches at the University of Maryland, by the way. I don't know, what was that, five years ago, something like that? Something like that. Yeah, it was, it was a little bit ago, but uh, now that you're, you're right up the street, like we got to make it, you know, happen more often, you know, for sure. I know. Likewise. Yeah, you got love to have you come visit us. Yeah, we have more timpani here than I know what to do with. Uh, that's where I come in, boot. I got you. Whatever you need. <laughs> <laughs> How have you been doing? How is, uh, you know, I know we, we all probably talk about this way too much, but like, you know, what, how's COVID been? You know, it's like COVID's wrapping up. We're starting to see kind of light at the end of the tunnel. I hope so, man. So, I mean, I'm good. Uh, family's good. Uh, I got vaccinated. My second shot was a week ago uh, yesterday. Um, it did knock me out uh, the day after, but I'm fine now. Moderna? Uh, Moderna, yeah. Oh, but Moderna, I mean, no problems. Yeah. <laughs> but it's totally worth it. Like, you know, for, 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 I mean, I'll just jump into this podcast. Not sure how, how raw we were going to get. Like, growing up uh, in, in, in the hood, being a black man, like, we, the stereotype is that we, shy away from medicine, from anything that's sort of like, you know, uh, doctor's offices and doctor's appointments and everything. It's just not, it's just taboo, right? And so I've got family that don't want to take the shot at all, even though, you know, their livelihoods depend on coming back to normal, whatever the case may be. And then the J&J news came out, right? What was it? Six cases out of 7 million or something like that. Freaked everybody out, right? And so here I am trying to tell, you know, close family members that like you not wanting to get this shot is I'm saying this in a nice way. I'm saying it more blunt here because uh, they probably won't hear this. You guys are being selfish, you know, like, I mean, get the shot so we can all go back to living a life that's more what we're used to. So, you know, like, I mean, COVID has been it's obviously upended all of our lives. Uh, that's um, but I guess I started this a little grim. Um, let me let me let me brighten this up. Uh I'm good. I'm vaccinated and very happy about that. And, uh, you know, the sun is out and so things are great. Um, no, nah, it's been fine. Man. It's been it's been fine. Like I have a few I know a few people that have passed on because of COVID. But, uh, you know, my family, my immediate family is healthy. And so I'm very thankful for that. So it's so true. Like, I mean, it's so, from so many different places now and just the most recent one is the vaccination you know, scare and misinformation and I mean, you know, if starting way back from like fake news and it's just all this information and it's just the whole clickbait, read the headline, but you can't follow through. It's like it's like me trying to clean up after my toddler. You know, it's like he can destroy the living room way faster than I can pick it up. You know, obviously um, it, it's like the same thing, like misinformation spreads so fast. You don't have time to dismantle it. Or I mean, the right people don't have time to dismantle it. Um, you can't possibly keep up with that. So uh, it, it's such a mystery with like how the heck we're going to fix this. It's like right now it's vaccination. What is it going to be? 
right. soon from now, you know. I think that's the first step. And then we'll figure it out. Like, this is clearly an evolving thing. I mean, COVID being brand new, you know, so we'll figure it out. I think as long as people, you know, trust science, I think we'll be all right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's so, um, it, it's so tricky too. Like people say like, why do you trust science? You're not a scientist. Like you're right. I'm not a scientist, but scientists. Has, trust scientists. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, but let me tell you why I do. It's because science has a reliable track record of like, well, look, they, they told me the eclipse of the sun would happen at this exact second. And it did. It's like th that has happened repeatedly. So, yes, I don't understand how the eclipse of the sun happened at that second, but their prophecy came true to the second. And it does every day when the lights continually turn on. Anyway, it's like it's a it's a really silly, frustrating um, argument to be in. Ben, why don't you ask a question about timpani or something or about me? <laughs> yeah, to, so to change to a lighter topic. Uh, Javon, I noted you have these uh, really unique looking timpani mallets by Innovative Percussion and Innovative Percussion for a very long time has had a history of making wonderful keyboard mallets and drumsticks, but I think they're the professional grade timpani mallets are, are a, a newer venture for them. So could you tell us about your mallet series with IP and developing them? Yeah, I mean, you said it very eloquently, like they've made great mallets over the years, but they had very little, let me rephrase that, zero experience with quality, high quality timpani mallets, right? So um, I, was a, I was approached by a colleague in the industry that said, hey, I think you'd be great to work with IP. I had not worked with any stick companies in the past um, other than like boutique uh, people for like my own personal stuff, right? But nothing official. And so I was like, yeah, you know, I'm good. I use what I use. It's fine. Life is great. You know, whatever, video games and, you know, timpani, I'm great. But um, after about a year, uh, this person came back to me and said, bro, I think you'd be fantastic. Why don't you just talk to them and you see what happens? So I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll talk to whoever. So that's when I had a phone conversation with, uh, with Eric, George and Chris, uh, the three, you know, uh, top guys at IP and, you know, they're just good people. And they were like, look, we don't know what we're doing. We think, you know, what you're doing. Let's figure this out together. I'm like, well, if you think I know, let's see what happens. And so we basically jumped in uh, flying blind a little bit. Obviously, they have the technology and all of the stick making, you know, acumen. And I had my ideas. And so the best thing about working with those guys is I think that they didn't know any better. So any idea that I had, they were like, yeah, let's try it. Any thought process, let's try it. You know, I want a stick that you can learn how to play with your elbows and your toenails. Yeah, let's try it. It didn't matter what my idea was. They were like, yeah, let's try it. So that's what we did. We tried everything under the sun. And at the end of the day, um, once we found, once we, once we came up with like the, the sort of the, the, the nuts and bolts, like what type of stick we want and the core we want or whatever, I remember throwing out to Chris, who is the VP of product development. I said, hey, man, you know, always joked that when I get, you know, and I already had my job. I said, once I get my job, I'm going to put spinners on my timpani for the wheels, right? You remember spinners back in like the 2000s, though, the core, the wheels that had the like the weird. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I put spinners on and it'd be kind of dope. And of course, that's silly. But I was like, you know, I always thought black on black would be great. He was like, well, hey, how about we, you know, try that for the sticks? I'm like, well, that's a process because, you know, at that point we had landed on bamboo, which we had went around everything else, graphite, carbon fiber, ebony, rosewood, hornwood. We went around a whole bunch of stuff. We had landed on bamboo. It was like, well, how do we get this to work. And so we tried paint, we tried stain, we tried lacquer, we tried like, uh, they tried some weird infusion that I don't even know about, right? Uh, and so we did that and they figured out a process that worked and then we had to do the same thing with the felt. Uh, and it was the same sort of thing when we threw out three or four different iterations of the felt. And so it was a really, really interesting process um, because a lot of this stuff had never been done before. The colored seam down the middle, like we had to figure out a way to do that because, you know, there was no way to put white, uh, a white dot on black felt. It just didn't stick. It looked weird. It just kind of looked funny. So like all these things kind of happened by uh, osmosis, if you will. And then the first batch came out and we still had some work to do because there were some quality control issues. Like the sticks that I own are perfect. Like my batch of sticks, I have two batches that I have myself. They're great. But what they had to figure out was how to make quality sticks every single time because you can't mass produce timpani mallets like you can mass produce a snare drum stick. Like you just put it in the machine, it, shut, it cuts out and then it's out, right? Timpani mallets are much more personal. They're much more like one-to-one. -one. So, uh, and I just took some time for them to understand that. They've always listened. 
IP is great. Yeah, it's it's rare. There's so many products in the exhibit hall at PASIC, and it's rare that you kind of stop and are taken aback by one. And your mallets in particular, I was like, those are the sexiest timpani mallets I've ever seen. <laughs> Just look at them, they're so cool. Um, and I, I remember hearing very much the, the same thing about like the Chris Lamb orchestral series. They, they said, you know, Chris Lamb wanted to try every last little possibility and and they're, they're great mallets because of it. So yeah, my hat's off to you. I, I look for, I think when I went by, I don't think there was actually a timpani there to, to try them on. So I look forward to actually trying them on a timpani at some point. Um, just play but, them on marimba. You can just bang them on multi multi But have Casey uh, write you a piece where it's like black timpani mallets on marimba. He can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah, just take another piece and write that above it. So uh, yeah, I'm white knuckle stroll. Um, yeah. <laughs> Devon, with with those with those mallets, obviously, again, like I mean, they have their you know very very decent educational models. Just the their general timpani series. With your mallets, obviously, you were talking about a completely new pricing tier for their timpani mallets. And was that sort of something that was discussed ahead of time? Like, hey, these are not going to be $30 a pair and they were okay with it or they just expected that or? No, I didn't really care. I mean, I let them deal with that. Like for me, it was not, it was 0% about like, you know, making money. It was about trying something new. Again, I wasn't really interested in doing it, but then once I met those guys and I saw the potential, I went all in and then it was great. So to be perfectly honest with you, I have no idea how much they cost. No clue. I, uh, I was, so, uh, yeah. yeah, I was almost tempted to ask like, what, what, how does, how do they determine that? Like, I wonder, you know, and I, 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 I have a similar response to my, uh, mallets as well it's like I, I don't really know how we came up with that or how they came up with it i certainly didn't it's like i think yeah. some people have input like i mean i would imagine that some other artists want input in the pricing and i and i and i think i, I think, do remember having a conversation and i think about it saying something like if you're gonna do this you have to make sure that like you know there are there are boutique timpani mallet makers that make things out of their house right and of course they have higher overhead and higher you know situations so if you want to compete i think the best thing to do is to first let's get a great product right and then let's like let's see what the response is but again that was you know i'm uh i'm a businessman but not a retail businessman i don't sell products so it's like you know i let them do that um you know and you know they they haven't told me that uh, I, I saw the numbers for 2019 I, I did see the numbers for 2020 which don't count because it's covid right but for 2019 uh they were fairly higher almost 60 percent higher than 2018 uh for cool. sales goes so like whoever's buying them or buying them right and so for me it's just a matter of like there are a million different great timpani maybe not a million there are a lot of great timpani mallets out there and so it's really about you know, what works for you and your space and feel and all that other stuff. So if I can add another, you know, another product out there, I'm not going to knock Ginter's mallets or Jeff's mallets or, you know, it doesn't, that's not me. Just, as long as you sound good, sound in tune, I don't care what you use. Yeah. Cool. Is there a mallet that like, I'll just hit the drum and it'll sound in tune? Uh, yes. The Javon Gilliam uh, in tune mallet, <laughs> uh, JG all in mallet. That will help you out. Yes. That's, that's my, that's my secret. Uh, it's my secret sauce, dude. That's why I'm always in tune, man. Like I if just... I need to play a scale, like I don't have to do a pedal or anything. I just yeah. do that and yeah. it happens. No, well, if you have a scale that we have, it's, it's a set of 13 mounts, right? So if you need any note you need, you got to pick up the right stick. So oh, okay. okay. I, I would, I, I would pay a higher, higher price. Right for that. Right. <laughs> I would do that. <laughs> Carly, I think you're next in the chat there. Yeah, yeah, I just got to tell you that that was a classic Casey dad joke. Yeah, good I'm job. I'm getting better. I'm getting better every day. <laughs> so, Javon, we talk a lot about balance on the podcast with a lot of different guests. And I think even though we talk about it a lot, I think you are the most qualified person to talk about balance because you are just so busy. Um, I know that you're in addition to Principal Timpani with the National Symphony and full-time at University of Maryland, you have capital percussion, and then all the other things that you do, like the Washburn Timpani Seminar, and you're working with NYO. So I'd love to know what's your what's your secret, and how do you prioritize the different aspects of your work and maintain energy to do it all so well as you do? I'll be honest, like, COVID has been a respite in that respect. Like, it's been a, it's been a bit of a time to sort of breathe and relax. Um, and just now in the past week, my life has started to like, like, it was like a, like a sharp curve up. Like it's gotten pretty busy in the last week, but before that, like, I've definitely tried to take this time 
again, this is not in reference to like the, the, the social injustice and the, the pandemic and all the financial crisis, like all the stuff that's still important that we are still dealing with. But me personally, I took this time to sort of recharge. Uh, because when life is going, I am busy. Uh, I stay up late. I get up early. Um, that is my not so secret secret. Um, I I'm pretty good with time management. Um, I will work during orchestra breaks. I will get to the concert hall early, go find a corner and knock some stuff out. You know, like I try to do that so that when I'm home, I'm home. And even then when I'm at home, like as soon as the kid goes to bed, I check in with the, with the boss. And then, you know, it's back to work again. I try to keep it moving. I feel like it right now, this is a season of growth for me, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I was trying to win a different job, like that season was excerpts practice, getting better at timpani. Right. And now uh, for me, it's like growing my business, you know? So like, it's a different season and that takes a whole different set of skills. So I just try to compartmentalize in that way. Uh, but the real secret is I just, I just stay up late. I'm up late and I just get, I get it in. And uh, so far, you know, it's been, um, it's been, it's worked out so far. Uh, the business has grown that I now have two full-time employees, which is great because they help me out so that I don't have to do some of the, I don't have to physically be or physically do some of the other things that I had to do when we were growing. So that frees up time to do other things. So it's a little bit more, and they're great. They're uh, actually both former percussionists, one from Towson, one from Florida State. So, I mean, that makes it great that they both, you know, know that particular portion, because when it comes to backline, being a drummer is really key, uh, like guitars and keyboards and all that other stuff and sound. That's part of it. But most of the time where the mistakes happen with backline is in the drum set where they don't know how to set up a drum kit. Right. You know, so uh, and we do so. Um, but it, it's all about, you know, making sure you keep your ducks in a row uh, and just take whatever time you have to knock out an email or you know, focus on this for 10 minutes and then move on to the next thing so that you don't get overwhelmed or behind. Right. Absolutely. Sneaking it in here and there where you can. Yeah, for um, sure. Well, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit more about your your original vision for capital percussion. How did that start? You know, what what was especially in the beginning? What was the mm -hmm. what was the work like and, and what's it like? What's your involvement now? Yeah. It's awesome that you have two full time employees. Yeah, it's great. So CP started uh, on a whim. Um, Eric Shin, who's the principal percussionist in the NSO, and I were out at a, at a restaurant and I'm like, ah, you know what? We own gear that we're that's sitting in our house or that's sitting not being used uh, that is probably better than some of the stuff that comes in for rentals. Why don't we just rent our percussion, our console percussion stuff to, you know, our friends that come through town. Like when Philly Orchestra comes through town and they need a set of chimes or bass chime or whatever, we'll provide it. Be great. Easy breezy. Like that was the impetus. And Eric's so savvy and uh, tech savvy at the restaurant. He got the domain name and got emails like in like five minutes. So that was the impetus of how CP started. Um, long story short, Eric went a different direction, as I'm sure some of you guys know, he owns restaurants now. He went a different direction. And so I looked at Capital Percussion with not, I didn't have that much gear. We had a few gongs and, you know, some timpani and whatever. It wasn't that much. I was like, do I want to sell this and just kind of, you know, move on? Or do I really want to put some you know, some some sweat equity in this and see what happens and see what can grow. And I did some research and I realized that there was actually a market for a company that does that, but also does backline. So I don't know if most, most concert percussionists don't know what backline is. So briefly, like when Snarky Puppy or John Batiste or Diana Ross or the police or Earth, Wind and Fire, like you could go, groups come to perform in your city nine times out of 10, they don't bring their own equipment unless they're like Taylor Swift and they come with like a 53 foot truck and like, you know, like tour buses. And so guitars, guitar amps, keyboards, drums, sound, staging, mics, all that stuff is locally sourced. And so that's a, that's an industry that, uh, you know, has been around for a long time. So once I realized that there was only one company in the district that did it, I decided to sort of jump in and see if I could, you know, be another option for people. Um, took a few years, but and took us some investment, like some some uh, financial investment and some, like I said, some sweat equity. But uh, we've grown, and now, like I said, that's our main uh, our main division, if you will, is definitely backline. We provide gear for you know festivals and 
you know, ensembles and concerts and jazz fests and all kinds of stuff. And that's what really I enjoy a lot, like going on, going to TV and going to, you know, whether it's on PBS or NPR or Tiny Desk and knowing that that's our gear that's being used, um, you know. And so that's really what it uh, the business has come to. We still provide all the concert percussion for like local high schools to come play memorials and all kinds of stuff. So it's become more of a conglomerate, if you will. Um, and so, you know, that's that's what the, the gig is now. Uh, at first, I did everything. Like I packed the gear, delivered the gear, purchased the gear, like marketed everything. Uh, and at this point, like I said, I have a I have a VP and I have a general manager who basically take care of everything uh, for me. And I basically make sure that they have the tools that they need. Uh, and that's what's actually been great during COVID. I've been able to pay them full time or their full salaries throughout COVID with a lot of hustle. Uh, and so um, it's been really great and we're all ready to go just so that when things hopefully open up, everybody that's listening, please continue to wear your mask and let's all get the shot, please. Once things open up and we can get moving, uh, we're ready to go. We're actually ready to roll and we'll be ready for, you know, to help out our clients uh, as best as they can once concerts start to come back. That's so great to hear. You know, I, I think every time you know like every city has hopefully at least one rental company where you know percussionists at least all the freelancers know oh like this company or this person has everything i trust them with with anything and just like the story is is similar like you see a need you have to have the the, the investment capital and you know the the hustle and the work ethic and know how to make it happen but it's wonderful to to hear your story there well, it's it's crazy. Like one thing, we're all drummers, so you guys will understand this. Like the in, the, the the investment financially, but whatever. But like the physical investment is it, it's insane. So we own thirty drum sets, and when I say one drum kit, that's eight, ten, twelve, thirteen inch rack tom, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen inch floor tom, eighteen, twenty, twenty two, twenty four inch kick drum, five a four, five, and a six and a half inch snare drum, and three sets of hardware. Right. So hi-hat stands and boom stands and thrones and pedals and all that stuff. That's one drum kit. We own 30. Do you have some of those Lars Ulrich metal sticks, though? Like, what if it's, they need some of those? Uh, we don't have those, but we've got a lot of other sticks. We've got some of those acrylic. Remember those old acrylic sticks that, like, you know, <laughs> have the weird feed, the weird feedback when you play? We own a lot of, we own a lot of stuff, man. We have a lot of stuff. So, you know, like, and that requires space, too, right? Like, yeah. you got to have a warehouse for this stuff. You got to have space. You got to have trucks. You got to have, you know, and there's insurance. I mean, it's, it's a real bona fide, like, side hustle not really side anymore you know uh but i love it i really do i enjoy it quite a bit yeah that makes a lot of sense because i know here you know the school of music at jmu and then there's the performing arts center which are the, you know of course they're they're very related but sometimes they're not like a, a group's coming to town mm-hmm. and sometimes i'll get a description of what gear they would like and sometimes it's really really specific which like you could fill but we we can't you know they say like we need a we need a a 22 and it's got to be yamaha and we need this and we need that and we need that and i had a, a colleague over there once asked like hey what are we going to do we don't have this stuff like well, how are we going to get that and i said like i i don't i don't know we you can now, tell now, them that... now you know now you know right now you know exactly yeah it's like well no that's like a whole separate are you insane like how would we have ever how would a school have every drum set size right. and brand and right. like and no that's a whole a lot of people thing. are cool a lot of people are chill about it right i mean you know you need, you need 20 you need, you need 22 you use a 20 it's fine but there are a lot of people that are not chill about it right yeah. you know where they have to have the right size and the right depth of toms like i guess some of these stories you've heard about how people say they want you know uh you know purple m&ms or they have to have only this and that or they have to have only fiji water because if it's poland spring i'm sending it back that's real man those are real I love Wayne's I love world. the Stephen Schick. I play exclusively what's available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that'd be great. That's, if everybody had that attitude, it'd be great. Right. Well, yeah, Ozzy wouldn't go on stage that night unless I found a thousand brown M and M's. Right. To Wayne's right. World. Yeah. True story. I don't know if that's a true story. Uh, ben, I think maybe. Yeah. Well, the the whole rental thing. I mean, it reminds me a lot of the the Jonathan Hosback story, and we we have an episode with him as well. But basically, he he started gigging in New York City and realized that he was making more money off renting his instruments than he was playing himself. So, um, but well, he's all, I, he, I've talked to him ad nauseum about this. Like, yeah, he's, I, he's he is yeah. the guy, obviously, to talk to about yeah. that. But well, Javon, I wanted to ask. Uh, we talked to Keith Aleo a while back, and Keith has this beautiful thing he talks about uh, about goals. And sometimes you'll have a lofty goal, and you'll 
reach it at a very old age. It takes you a long time to get there. And sometimes by the time you get there, your goal has actually changed and you, you go in a different direction. But with Keith, the thing was he won his job at a very young age. I think he was 24 or so, uh, like you, uh, who also won a job at a very young age. And he talked about basically like, I was 24 and I got the gig. So like, what did I do from there? How did I continue to grow and develop as a person? What new direction did I go in? And if you know Keith Aleo, you can kind of deduce what the story was there. But Javon, after you got your gig, did you have that same feeling of like, all right, well, the world is my oyster. What do I do now? Everything Keith does is beautiful, right? Keith is just beautiful personified, right? Um, I think um, I didn't have that at first. You know, I was just very happy, very fortunate to be, you know, I mean, you guys know, you, you take the gig wherever the gig is. It doesn't matter, right? I mean, my first gig was in Winnipeg. You know, I didn't know where that was. And I love Winnipeg. I love my years in Canada. It's great. So, you know, when I got the job in D.C., I was very fortunate and I did not take it for granted from day one. Like I did not. And so for a while, I was just happy to be alive, man. It's just like, you know, kid in a candy store, like, you know, between that and having great kids at UMD, like I miss, I miss Carly by a few years there, but like, you know, like it's fantastic. I was like, this is like, life is great. I have not and had not had a chance to get sort of bored or needing to find something else before CP happened. Right. So now that I've got the business on top of this other stuff, I'm good. Like I'm cool. I'm, I, I got plenty of stuff to keep me busy. So I don't know. And I, and there's still like, I still, and I mean, maybe it's COVID related, but like, I, I feel re- rejuvenated with my job. Like I never got tired of playing Chai 4, but I've played it 7,000 times. So it's, it is what it is, but like, I haven't heard it or listened to it or played it in over a year. So like, I miss it. So like, you know, now I'm kind of ready to get back into it. So for me, the age or, you know, the goal sort of goal setting, whether it's young or old, I guess for me, it's just like, I just had such a very last few years with the business kind of growing. And then, like I said, with this sort of situation with COVID happening, sort of getting a reset in that way. In that way, uh, For me, it's just kind of like just making sure that like I can wake up and put my pants on and like, you know, make sure my kids get out to school, you know, before that's just the simple things for me these days, you know. Have you considered changing your company name to Capital Percussion Products so it could be you down with CPP? Yeah, you know me. <laughs> uh, I have not, but that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. So uh, CPP. Royalty free, you can have that one. Well, I mean, oh, I'm going to go opportunity employee. If I do, if I do do a DBA, like I will, I will, you will get, you will get 37 cents. I absolutely. Will <laughs> get, get uh, I'm going to think about that. Oh, that's a good My one. My other podcast business idea, if Yamaha or anyone is listening, is to do an, a battery-powered motor on a vibraphone so you don't have to plug it in. I've mentioned that many times. Well, and I counted. What, happens, what happens if it runs out? How, how do you do it if it runs out mid-show? How do you, how it's do like you? a laptop battery. Like, you can use it plugged in or not plugged in, and it charges all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thinking. Well, thinking like a here. Prius. Wait, we had all these ideas. Like, like a Prius, every time you pedal, it charges. Right? Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. EVV. EVV. Yeah. Yeah. with EVV. Yeah. Yeah, we Call can. Yamaha. We can, yeah, we can figure out how to make that work. I'm sure. Yeah, a couple of drummers could figure that out. Well, my idea was that it would be wind up. So, like a music box, that you wind it up, it'd be spring tension. So you wouldn't need a battery <laughs> at all. Perfect. And then and that could really work. Almost down, it starts to play like some sort of lullaby, like you know, like a music box. It's perfect. Let you know yeah. you're out of, out of juice. I think I think that could work. Well, hey, we, we talked a good deal about rental, and I I ran into a little story that's uh, I mean rental related. It's not a story of of renting these church bells, but it's a a story of um just a a quick little donation story. And in tune. Look at that. I know, like really in tune. I actually want to talk a little about that. So that's the C. They're using my sticks, remember? Don't forget. They're using my sticks. That's oh, that's why. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the C and G. Okay, so you guys, this is Berlioz, Symphony Fantastique, C and G, the bells that are required, the offstage church bells that you often see on stage because people often prefer that the theatric and presentation. But yeah, being played with Javon Gilliam's signature CNG sticks. So they're in tune, which is awesome because you can just hit a hunk of metal and it doesn't matter. They'll still sound right. <laughs> but no, I bumped into this story. Our buddy, Fian- uh, Fernando Meza, who, by the way, just got promoted to full professor. Way to go, Fernando. Yeah, I saw that. Yep. 
Yep, that's awesome. No surprise there. We knew that was certainly going to happen. And he's been on the show before. He's a, he's a longtime friend. But in his Facebook feed, I just saw this little story of a, a donation of these two church bells to the Minnesota uh, Orchestra. And I've seen Fernando play in Minnesota. It's uh, just a fantastic hall. It's a wonderful space. I saw him play the Rite of Spring with the group. I mean, they just, I don't know if I've ever heard such a perfect performance of the Rite of Spring. So yeah, those are the CNG bells for Berlioz Symphony Fantastique and those are the actual bells that were donated to the Minnesota Orchestra and uh, a, a fan of the orchestra named Gary Cohen who is I guess a history professor he was making regular donations to the orchestra and he becomes friends with uh, Brian Mount who's the principal percussionist and I guess he and Brian become friends over conversations in the lobby and they start passing around videos and they start passing around recordings and talking about gear and percussion and and Gary Cohen, who, who gifted the bells, said he's surprised to see that a lot of times orchestras don't have the bells and they're often using MIDI playback or they're using chimes or something. And actually Berlioz recommends two pianos on stage if you don't have the bells, which like... I, no, come on. He must have been. Uh, he must have been high when he said that. That ain't gonna work. So we use chimes, of course. We use, you know, MIDI triggers. We use things like that. But um, here, here's a little quote from from the article on their website. Mount and Cohen come through some of the best-known orchestral works to use the bells. Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, Richard Strauss also Spock Zarathustra, Shostakovich Eleven, Mussorgsky Pictures and Exhibition, as well as Night on Bald Mountain, several Mahler symphonies and Britain's 4C interludes. Of these works, one stood out to Mountain Cohen, and that was, of course, Symphony uh, Fantastique. So, yeah, I thought this was exciting, and this was really cool, and it, it kind of encouraged me to look up a little about bells and how bells are made. Does anybody know how church bells are made? No. Tell us. Well, I could just like, you know, show you a cool YouTube video that will explain it really well, but you can do that on your own. So instead, what I'm going to do is, <laughs> Ben's laughing, I'm going to draw it for you on Microsoft Paint. Are you guys ready for this? Oh, boy. I cannot this wait. Be, this is really, this is really, really going to bum some of you out. In fact, look, I'll show you right now. Like I have a video queued up on how to do it. Like right here, here's a video of like an actual bell maker on bells. How do they do it? Discovery. But instead of doing that, we're going to go straight to Microsoft Paint. And what they do is they have like a center column of, uh, oh, let's see, what am I doing? They have a center column of like bricks, right? So imagine these are bricks. Oh, yeah. Those are bricks. Nice. And then they kind of, <laughs> they kind of, you know, make a, make a, column down the side those are also bricks i casey i always thought it was there was a boy bell and a girl bell <laughs> that, that might be how it's done and then and then what they're going to do is pack sand around this pile of bricks okay they're packed this is sand that you're seeing and they're going to slowly uh create a bell shape out of that sand right and they're going to make it really strong with a coating of graphite like like graphite paint and then they're also going to pour hot wax on it more sand and they'll make this really excellent looking bell out of sand that's really really detailed and it's and it's pretty firm and um, that's called the false bell so that's actually what the bell will look like and then what they do is they take an opposite mold so they take like the same thing like the same shape from that bell they make another mold and that mold goes on top of it and there's more sand in between those two things so they get the shape from the false bell and then they put more sand in here okay let it cool and let it harden and then when they, uh, let's see, and then they remove it so that there's a, a void there. And then they pour lava freaking hot brass in here. Okay. And then they take everything off and you're left with a bell. Okay. So that's, that's how they do it. If you really want to learn how they do it, you should just watch this video. 
Oh, Ksenia looks mad. She's like shaking her head, like, oh my god. The most learning I've done in a year, man. This is great. Like, see, see, now Ksenia, see, it's fine. She, she's mad. She's like, Casey, this is gonna be a high profile episode, Javon Gilliam, and you just drew Microsoft Paint how bells are made. But it's pretty clear, right? As very clear. I am now a bell making expert medium. See? Okay, so this is gonna make me sound really stupid and uneducated, but that's not how they make timpani, right? Timpani are made with like a press. So they make timpani with clay. Let me show you. Let me pull up my Microsoft Paint. No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, tubs are made a little different. They take a piece of copper or two pieces and they do, they press it and then they hand hammer it. Uh, most timpani are, well, nowadays you can make uh, the, the bowl out of a single piece. Uh, but in the like old days, they were, right, there were two or three pieces. Like my drums are two piece frames or two piece bowls. The orchestra's drums are two-piece bowls, so and then the Yamahas that we have are single, so spun. Uh -huh. No clay, no clay, no clay involved, no molten hot lava, which is sad, you know. Like now, now that's what I want. Now you know, like, I'm gonna call Yamaha. We're gonna get the battery power vibe, and then we're gonna get the molten timpani. This is what's gonna happen. We're gonna make them so much money. It's gonna be great. <laughs> I'll just add when you when you look at the underside of a bell, especially a church bell, you will see these grooves that you see here, almost like grooves in a record, right? And they're like denser in some places. Like right here, they're really thick and that's because there are certain points that you tune the five pitches of a bell so there's five notes they tune and is that like harmonics casey uh sort of they call them partials i don't know if there's a specific difference between partials and harmonics um i'm really not quite sure um but it, yes it is it is like that like pitches around and beyond the the fundamental so those pitches are i can't keep track of my freaking doc there it is those pitches are the hum note which is the lowest partial and then an octave above is the prime or fundamental that's of course the main note that you hear the next one is called the tierce or minor third partial which gives a bell i guess it's melancholy quality according to this and then the quint or perfect fifth above the prime and then what's called the nominal partial which is one octave above the prime naming note and that's it so there's five notes they tune and that's what those grooves are inside and that's why you'll see one set of grooves that seems to be like more carved at than some of the other spots that's super interesting dude i mean i don't know if this is if this like equates to this but that maybe that's why some bells some chimes are out of tune maybe like whoever you know sat and did their whole clay lava situation maybe they didn't do it right or i mean of course they go out of tune over time but i've never really thought about why certain chimes or certain notes on certain chimes sound better than others and that mm -hmm. what you just explained might be uh might be my answer to that so yeah, well, and I, I don't know about y'all but my experience with like anything metal like you can knock it out of tune you know, mm -hmm. like sometimes you got to fuss at people. Hey, don't hit those crotales too hard. You will like literally knock them out of tune. So do you think that they're like the, the groove situation? They're like knocking the grooves out of out of whack, you think, or something like that? I don't know. I'm not a rabbit hole here, but I'm, I'm, I'm down with it. Yeah. I assume it's just the integrity of the metal. Like if you dropped a bell, you know, mm -hmm. like let's say, you know, in fact, we reported on the fire at Notre Dame and talked about how, you know, the, the scariest part, they were so worried about the fire reaching the bell tower because if the bells fell down they would probably take a lot of the cathedral with them right because they're all the structure supporting the bells is made of wood so if the fire got to the bell tower it's like oh my gosh we got to get the fire out before it gets to the bell tower so they're prioritizing the bell tower and i forget what episode this was on i reported on it like a tillion episodes ago but um if those fall if those fail the bells are going to fall and they weigh I mean, thousand tons, you know, they're going to take the church down with them. So, yeah, but imagine like if that bell fell, it's not going to be in tune anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a fair assumption. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's your that's your, that's your topic for the day. And thanks, Fernando, for for sharing that. I thought it was it was cool. Appreciate you, Fernando. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, Xenia. Um, cool. I wanted to ask uh, two questions. One is what happened to your uh, piano career, promising piano career? And two, how did arts administration inform your business mind today? Uh, those are sort of related, to be honest. Um, so I got a scholarship to go play piano at Butler, which is the school I went to for my undergrad. 
And growing up in Gary, which is very stereotypical, you know, uh, segregated, it's very black, it's very lower class, uh, lower middle class, uh, but we were, we were pretty broke. Uh, my dad used music to keep me off the streets and away from the drugs and the guns, right? Music and sports. And so I was the only classical piano player in the neighborhood. And I won't say in the city because, you know, it's a big city, but like I, I was the only one I knew of. Right. And so that helped because some of the drug dealers, some of the, 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 the ne'er-do-wells would know to either send me home tell me to go home because something's about to happen or they would, you know, make sure that they always took care of me. Right. So I had that sort of halo, if you will, uh, which allowed me to go and practice. Right. My dad, like every day after school, I was practicing playing piano. So I got, I got pretty good for Gary. So I would do, you know, banquets and funerals and, you know, all kinds of things in Gary. And that obviously got me to practice and, you know, play fur really well and some other stuff. And so I get to Butler and I'm one of two, students that are on full scholarship. The other was a, a lady or a, a, a young woman from uh, Wisconsin. And so this is either right when school started or right before school. And we were both practicing. And I believe I was walking past and I heard her and I had met her in some other thing. So I knock on the door and I say, hey, uh, her name was Colleen. I said, hey, Colleen, you know, how you doing? It's nice to meet you, Javon. It's like, oh, yeah. So me, Mr. Mr. Gary, the best in the city, I'm like, oh, you know, why don't we just, uh, you know, let's, let's just play for each other. Let's just see how this goes. Well, she's, like, oh, she's like, oh, sure, of course. So I start first. And I remember I did Chopin's revolutionary etudes in C minor, right? All these fast runs. I do it. I'm fine or whatever. And then I sit back and I probably sit back, B-boy. I'm like, all right, now you go. She wiped the floor with me. Oh my gosh. I don't even remember what she played, but she destroyed me. And this, in like three minutes, I'm sitting there. I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. Like she literally handed me my hat. And this was before school started or right at the beginning. So it was at that point that I kind of realized I'm not as good as I think I am. Right. You know? Uh, and so that was sort of the impetus for me to think about doing other things. I had played I was a piano player in the youth orchestra in high school. And my first foray into timpani was when there was a piece, a Leroy Anderson's A Christmas Overture that needed timpani. There was no timpanist or percussion players, at least at that rehearsal, but there was no piano on that particular tune. So the cello coach, got to follow me the instruments here, came to me and said, hey, do you want to play timpani since you're not playing piano? I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, so I go over there and my first time ever playing timpani, like this this, this uh, Christmas Overture is in C major. It opens in C major, so G's and C's. But I read it in treble clef because it's piano play, right? So I play E's and A's, right? That was my first foray in the timpani, right? It's a disaster. So, you know, like, so I, I kind of had a background and I was like, well, you know, clearly I'm not as good as I thought with piano. Um, so that was my freshman year and I kind of farted around, you know, girls and all kind of stuff like you do in college or whatever. So then my sophomore year comes around and the new there was a new percussion instructor at Butler. John Crabill is his name. And long story short, he's the one that put me on this path. He studied with Johnny Lane at Eastern Illinois. He also studied with Tim Adams, who was a timpanist then in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. And so he was the one that basically said, you know, you can make a living playing drums, I was sold. And so that's how I got started into percussion. Um, but because I wanted to try to keep my scholarship, I went to the dean. The dean at that time also happened to be my piano instructor. So I was like, look, I think I want to switch. You know, I don't want to do piano anymore. I'm thinking about doing arts administration for a fallback, right? Because, you know, percussion performance, this is, again, I'm a young idiot, idiot. And people are like, that's a degree that leads you nowhere, which is clearly not true. But that's what I was told. So I was like, well, maybe I'll do arts administration because, you know, I don't know, seems cool. So it was really like, Ksenia was very like naive. I'm still naive in a, in a way. Like, that's just the way I live my life. I kind of ready, fire, aim. I leap first and then be like, ah, that didn't really work. And then backtrack and fix it. That's just how I am, you know? Uh, so that's kind of the story how it happened. I, so I changed my sophomore year. I dropped piano. I switched to arts admin with a specialty specialty in percussion, um, and my because the dean was my piano teacher, he let me keep my full ride, right? And so that's kind of sort of how it all works together. And I didn't get into, I didn't switch, and then I still farted around and didn't practice my sophomore year, junior year, girls, right? And so then it came to my senior year, and that's when I actually got serious into timpani. It was my senior year in college. Um, and that's sort of, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the situation, but it was sort of a roundabout way and I didn't really know any better. 
Like I didn't know how hard it was to get a job or how, and, you know, like nowadays I know it's just as hard to get a university position as it is to get an orchestra position. It's all hard. I didn't know any of that. And that was probably the best thing for me is was my naivety. I was just living life, just kind of hanging out, trying to do whatever, whatever college kids do, college boys do, girls. So it's whatever, you know, like I was just trying to do whatever. And like, that's kind of sort of what it ended up being for me, just kind of like, you know, living life. And then once I became a senior is when I changed and I got sort of focused. So, um, and the arts that main portion helped. I did my internship with the Atlanta Symphony in Atlanta and Indianapolis Symphony. Uh, and so that kind of kept me involved in the orchestra world. And then, you know, went to go get my master's and then got a, got the job. Wow, that's so cool. What, what long, a great long, long story. story. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Thank you. You know, I totally agree that I think the naivete of not knowing like how hard this can be as far as a career path is a hundred percent a benefit for for students. Of course, like we need to know the realities of what is possible after school and all of that. But yeah, right. I, right. that resonates with me. Um, Giovanni, I, I heard you were on the Percussion Pedagogy podcast recently with Tommy Dobbs. It was a nice interview, yeah. and I heard you talk a little bit about helping your students and wanting to help them be better people and better citizens and you know better human beings in addition of course like you know we want our students to develop great hands and musicianship and all of those other skills would you talk a little bit more about kind of what non-musical characteristics or traits or things do you hope your students learn from you i see being an educator as you know like we are stewards of like these parents like want the best for their kids everybody does right and so like they are handing their child off to you to make mold them into this you know this person i mean i'm sure all of us like at least for me let me speak for myself like my college years were my most formative right i mean you know middle school like is the most brutal time ever like i'm starting to see like my four-year-old i'm so nervous for her to go to middle school because it's just you know that's gonna suck but like that's not what necessarily shapes you as a human being right it's your college years the years where you're out there by yourself you're making your mistakes by yourself you figure it out by yourself you know and so like i take I, I take very seriously the responsibility when these parents will call me. I'm thinking about sending my kid to Maryland. They ask about all the questions that we all get as educators, like class size and you know ensemble and all this other stuff that's music related. But what I try to do is I try to get the parents to see that it's more to it than that. It's about being able to create good people in the world so that they can sort of pay it forward with regards to everything else, right? I mean, you look at what's happening now, what's happened, like I said, with um, um, some of the social injustice stuff that's been going on for like in the George Floyd situation, which just ended the way, the way I think it should have with Derek Chauvin being convicted, like that was sort of the catalyst for everybody to see like, hey, this has to happen, right? And then we're dealing now most recently with the, the, Asian, the, uh, the, the Asian discrimination, like it's never gonna stop unless everybody, black, white, purple, brown, orange, yellow, realize that we have to do this together, right? And so I, I married an attorney, pivot a little bit. I married an attorney and non-musical person at all, right? And I remember, you know, on our first couple of years of marriage, she asked me, she said, you know, I really want to do something to make a difference. And like, have you ever really thought about doing something to make a difference? And I looked at her and I didn't take offense, but I said, you know, I really think that my job is a difference maker in the fact that I perform for politicians, for heads of state, for all these people that make these decisions in the world, right? If they need two and a half hours to come to the concert hall to turn off those cell phones, to shut it down mentally, to rejuvenate and to replenish themselves, then I'm doing my job, right? That's, that is me doing my part as best I can with the talent that I've been given and the position that I've you know, been given to make the best of it, right? And so I take pride in the fact that while I might be indirect, I am helping society on some level, right? And it's the same thing with students, right? I wanna make sure that, yeah, if I recommend that, you know, uh, if I recommend that Carly, my student, can do this gig at the Washington National Cathedral, like, yeah, I need you to show up on time. I need you to be, you know, a good person. I need you to have your part prepared. I need you to, you know, all that stuff is great, right? But I also need you to make sure that, that you, um, in order for you to get called back, like, you could be the best player out there. But if you're a jack wagon, they're not going to call you back. They're not going to want to see you again, right? And so it becomes more to more about, like, creating, uh, cultivating good people 
first, right? Understanding, like, I'm not, I'm not here to teach you, like, you know, respect and, like, obey your elders, like, none of that stuff. Like, again, you guys are grown. My students are grown. But it's more about understanding the concept of, like, paying it forward. Like, this music is bigger than just yourself. And it's just, it's, it's just something, like, it's the way I was musically raised, musically with John. Like, he just was a good person first. And then he was a hell of a player second, right? And that hierarchy matters. Like we all can think of, I'm sure one or two or three or 10 uh, colleagues that are in our industry that they're great players, but you probably don't want to work with them, right? And because we are all in positions of uh, quasi influence where we can make decisions, right? You know, Casey, you can choose if you want to bring this person in for a podcast or for a masterclass, right? They can be a great player, but like I said, if they're, if they're wagon, not going to happen. Right. And I think that matters. I think that matters. And so my goal, my thought process is to make sure that first and foremost, you know, you realize that being a good person is what really matters. And then you have a studio of good people, which creates a culture of good people. And that is how you create change. That is how you create grassroots change by having the, the collective move things forward. Right. And if the collective in my life can be my studio of 20 some kids. Right. And we're moving things forward on campus, for example, or in this wing of the Clarice or in in this wing of the music center, or, you know, like it it doesn't have to be this global change that I see in living in DC. Right. And being able to, you know, be next to presidents and heads of state, like we can create change on the ground level, just as, just as powerful. And I, I, I like that. I do. I have not accepted students that were great, just didn't fit the personality, didn't fit the the, the personality of the studio. And uh, they've all, some of them have gone on to be, have careers, have great careers in our industry. And I'm happy for them. I am. I'm happy for them. So it's just a matter of fit. And that's the type of studio that I have wanted to create because that's the type of studio that I saw at Butler. That's beautifully said. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it is so important. Um, however, we had a, a technical question uh, on Instagram. Jesse Guo said, how do I get even hands? So could you please spread some light on that? Even hands, paid hands. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, I mean, it's the like, it's like the it's like the elusive thing. Like everybody wants to be Casey Cantalosi, right? We all want to do, be able to do and be him, right? And we can't, right? So, I mean, that's a loaded question. Like, how do you get even hands? I mean, the simple answer is practice, right? I mean, that, but that's not going to help, right? Uh, for me, what I've always done to sort of keep, and it's what I've done in COVID. Like, I am actually, I'm not in Washington right now. I'm in California. We've spent most of COVID out in California uh, with my best friend and his wife, uh, you know, so created a different pod. So I don't have timpani, right? I've had to rent some timpani to practice downtown LA for a couple of gigs, but like I'm adding timpani. So I've got a practice pad and some sticks, right? And so what I usually do to make my hands even to be more technical about it is I have always, and I can will continue to, and will probably always continue to focus on my left hand, my weak hand, right? Um, and so for me, I'll do, uh, for example, you, you pick any tempo, but I'll do eight on one hand, da, 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 and then 16, sorry, eight on my strong hand and then 16 on my weak hand. And then double stops to make sure that they are doing the same thing, right? You get these weird flams, you get, you know, flams and you're going to have some da-da-da-da-da-da. You want to make sure that it's flat flams is what I do. When you're playing timpani, when you were going for double stops, you want to do flat flams. You want to make sure that they're flat. You get that weird trampoline-y feeling, you know, when you land on the trampoline, when it's down at the bottom, it feels weird, your knees buckle. That's what you want when you're doing these sort of double stops. You want to make sure that they're flat so that you make sure your hands are even. So I've been doing that you know, for 20 years. That's been sort of my warm up. eight, 16, and then 16 uh, double stops. That's helped out a lot. Um, obviously practicing in front of a mirror. These days you've got video like out the wazoo. So use a video, practice video, make sure your hands are doing the same thing. Literally look at your hands, look at the video and make sure that your hands are doing the same thing, that they're hitting in the same playing spot or in the same playing spot relation to each drum or each bar or whatever the case may be. So it's like doing those things from the beginning and then sort of working your way up with speed and accuracy and you know notes or whatever. So you can start on a drum, put a towel on the drum or whatever the case may be. And like that's 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 been my main my main basic exercise to creating even hands. And then when I'm practicing something that's across the console, four, five, six, seven, eight drums, like I just make sure that um, that that is first and foremost. And then the other thing with regards to creating a good sound, which is also 
even hands, paid hands, is to make sure that my console is in the right place. That's one of the things that I see a lot of students don't tend to do. They'll just come into the lesson from the last person who was 6'3", and they're 5'8", and then they don't move the drums so that they're in the right place for them, right? And so it's not even that they're playing, that they sound bad, they're just hitting the drum in the wrong spot because the drum's too far away because of their arms, and this is all that. All So little details like that, and those are the things that I kind of focus on from the beginning from like lesson number one. Uh, and so it's some of those things that, you know, feels like they helps, but playing the drums in the right spot isn't gonna get you even ass. It's just practice. That's all I can tell you, buddy. I'm sorry. It's hard. It's not easy. Like I said, everybody can't be Casey. There's only one. So mm. you're gonna do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Although I hear if you buy Casey's mallets, it helps. You gotta buy his mallets, that helps. And like I said, you wanna play in tune? Just buy my, yeah, buy all 13 though. That's the thing. You can't, can't buy one until you can buy all 13 and then you, everybody wins. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> I like this. I like this. Uh, one more question from Facebook, our buddy, Will Marinelli. Hey, Will, thanks for your questions as always. Uh, we've talked a little about this already, but I don't think we've talked about um, how orchestras might be moving forward. And of course, you're in a lot more of these conversations than, uh, than I am, certainly. But uh, the question from Will is, the pandemic has changed so much of what we consider to be normal. How do you think orchestras, especially those on a smaller scale, can survive and thrive in the new normal? I mean, PPP has helped, to be honest. Like, you know, like the government has come through in a way that for a lot of businesses, if you are like, you've got your ducks in a row and your, you know, your management or your leadership is on top of things, like they've given you some tools to try to be able to survive, right? You're not going to thrive right now, but they've given you some, some assistance. And so like with regards to like literally organizations being able to survive, it obviously depends on the leadership of that particular organization. But orchestras in general, I do believe that they're going to come back obviously, because arts, as we've all said, I'm sure you guys have seen the memes and the posts and everything, like no one would have survived this pandemic without the arts, whether that's Netflix, whether that's books, like this is all art related, all arts related. And so I think a lot of people that didn't see it that way are starting to realize that arts, the arts are an integral, non-negotiable part of life. And you know, yeah, classical music orchestras can be stuffy and can have this sort of stigma of, you know, being, you know, frou-frou or better than, you know, holier than thou. And again, once you get to know folks, like, you know, that's not the case. That's that's not the case for all. Um, but I do think that like, it's gonna be a, a, a some innovation's gonna need to happen. You're gonna have to have some innovative programs. One of the things that the Kennedy Center and the NSO has done that I think has been great is that they've definitely tried to, move the needle to more innovative programming. DC, DC, the nickname for DC is Chocolate City. DC is, there are a lot of black people in the district, right? And so what they've, I think, smartly done is they've catered to that to try to get these people that don't necessarily go to the Kennedy Center for these concerts to come into the hall. I mean, we've done concerts with Nas, with Kendrick Lamar, with John Legend, like, and some of these concerts, man, like, I mean, you show up and like, it reeks of weed, man. Like they, they brought the people in that they wanted to bring in. Right. But that's the point. They come in here and then they see that. And then, you know, like I, I've, I can't tell you dozens of times I'll come out because the stage door at the Kennedy Center is at the front. So the stage door, you come out into the lobby of like the public lobby. I've come out, I can't tell you dozens of times and a, a couple, uh, uh, <clears throat> a black couple or a non-white couple will come up to me and they'll say, were you the guy up there? I say, hey, this is great. This is the first time for us. This is fantastic. I'm like, hey, next time you come back, come to the desk, ask for me. I'll come out. I'll say hello. I'll give you a tour. Like I try to make it inviting for these people to come because that is what I think it's going to take for all orchestras, not just the NSO to continue to thrive is you're going to have to bring in new people and come to them. It's just like any other thing. It's just like teaching. We all, we all, we all teach. If you want to be, in my opinion, being a great teacher, you have to teach to the student. Your technique, you have to cater how you teach to that student. It's the same thing here. You have to sort of bring the people in. So I think it's going to take some innovation for most of the orchestras and some perseverance and just some willingness to be flexible and do new things. Yes, we love playing Mahler. Yes, we love playing, you know, Stravinsky, but like, we're going to have to do some different things. And if you really don't want to play movie music, like then, you know, like 
tough shit or tough cookies. What yeah, if they never work? Sorry, guys. Like, you know, tough. That's what you're going to have to do, you know? So, like, it just is what it is. You know? Maybe they should pass out weed. Oh, it's coming legal more and more. Whatever works, man. There's plenty of, uh, you know, there's plenty of space for that. So, especially in the district. So, but uh, <laughs> it, is, it is funny hearing this. You know, like symphonies have the reputation of being stuffy or whatever. And like, Carly and I had this gig in Miami one time. It was to, Miami has like a big EDM festival every year called Ultra Music Festival. And uh, yeah, we played this like EDM concert in the Arch Center. And like, you know, it's not the music that I would listen to when I go home, but it was funny. Like, it, it was fun playing timpani and, and watching someone in the front row just losing it over how cool right. it was. Like, that, that doesn't right. happen during Beethoven. <laughs> right. It just doesn't anymore because, uh, you know, these. These people that listen to that, they don't get, and that's what it's all about. Like, wow, this is amazing. And then you do, maybe they end up coming to something else that's not necessarily as, that it's EDM or that's not, you know, that's not, uh, it's not Nas. So I think that that's, that's the whole point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Ben, I, I remember that gig um, fondly, but you know what, down here in Miami, we also do things like, it, sometimes it's not the ideal music, but it's like the video game music from Pokemon and people go nuts for it yes. and they're getting in the door. I did that one too or, with Carly, yeah. <laughs> done Legends of Zelda, you know, I mean, the Harry Potter ones are super fun, the music. I love those shows, right? Because it's yeah. great, they're hard and it's challenging. So it's actually, you know, more fun, more engaging to me than you know, Beethoven in some ways, because I have to focus. It's great. I love those shows. I love yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned video games early on. You said I can be happy like timpani and video games. What are we, what are we talking about here? What do you final think? fantasy? Oh yeah. Okay. What's your favorite? Yes. Oh man. I, I mean, since COVID didn't seven remake come out in COVID times. I can't remember. It yeah. feels like uh, uh, somewhere around there. Yeah. Somewhere around there. So I finished that. Uh, so that one was pretty good, but my favorite all time is probably 10. Ken's good. Yeah. Final Fantasy. That's that's my that's my thing. Yeah. Nice. A couple other orchestras, orchestra members the NSO that are into Final Fantasy. So anytime it comes out, there's this random text chain. We don't talk for like two years on text and then we get a text about that. So it's good. I think it has to be seven for me, but it was also like the first, you know, it's like it's hard oh. to beat your first experience with yeah, that. Sure, sure. Yeah. Seven was my first foray into Final Fantasies. I was in college, my freshman year in college. Like Seven was the, the first time I saw Final Fantasy Seven was also the first night I ever drank a 40. True story. Uh, cool, cool. Ben, which one's your favorite? Come on. Uh, I like the one with the mines where you click or, or right click. <laughs> <laughs> Final Fantasy I... Minesweeper. <laughs> When I was in high school, I took a poster uh, of Yuna from Final Fantasy X to my hairdresser, and I was like, I want this, the long rat tail. <laughs> I cut off my hair, and I had that long rat tail, and I really wanted her outfit, and everybody awesome. thought it was really stupid, but I loved it, so I totally nerd out <laughs> with this, too. Wow, that's cool. Well, hey, I think that's a good way. Oh, actually, before we wrap it up, I, I need to just check with Javon. This is what I was going to use as the thumbnail. Is that cool? You guys okay with that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is absolutely appropriate. Yes. Can yes. that be the can that be the thumbnail? Sticks and, for the sticks and weeks, right? Cool. Everyone knows now. Hey, that's how bells are made. Look at that. You got the all the layers right there. So everyone thanks that was episode gosh i don't know like like 400 and something there's a lot we've done a lot of episodes and anyway javon man thanks so much it's always fun talking with you this is fantastic you guys are great uh thank you for having me and like it's really good to start to i mean zoom we've been zooming for the last you know however many whatever months but it's it, like i'm excited because like we're going to start to do this stuff in person but this is this has been yeah. fantastic this is great so uh you guys have a great thing going here and i appreciate you for asking me to be a part of it yeah, yeah, geez, you're very welcome. Oh, gosh, Ksenia, Ben, Carly, take it easy. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.